0: It's Philosophy Friday, again, uh, stay tuned. Okay, well guys, if you remember last uh, Friday, oh, by the way, introductions, uh, I'm Andre, standing in for Mike, I'm a pastor of a Bethesda Baptist Church in Felixstone in the UK and uh, Mike's away in the States Um, and so I'm standing in for him holding the fort while he's away and getting some rest and um, we are looking at some philosophy on Friday. Now uh, we're doing a sweeping overview and the reason why we're doing this is because philosophy is important, the study of philosophy is important not because it helps us to find God or, um, or understand the kind of things we need God to reveal to us, but because it helps us understand our world. Why does the world think the way it does? Um, and it also helps us understand, therefore, the ways that we as Christians are likely to be worldly. Um, you know, it helps us to discern the ways in which our thinking is more philosophical, like the world, than it is biblical, like the gospel and um, that was the problem with uh, the church in Corinth in particular. They were creating a a version of Christianity, a kind of spirituality that was more based on the values and customs of their culture, of the philosophies of the day, than they were on the gospel. And uh, so Paul has to write and say, no, you need to think more like Christians, less like Corinthians. And The question is, well, how are we more like the world around us than we are like Christians? Or do we just think that we're somehow immune to the influence of the philosophies around us? So knowing philosophy can help you discern its influence uh, on you, but it can also help you understand why the world thinks and works the way it is. Why is it that people are placing such a lot of em- emphasis on science is providing the answer for everything. And why also do people come up at the same time, in the same breath, saying things like, well, that's your truth, but that's not my truth. Um, anyone who watches Netflix will know, You get a, you, uh, has any idea about philosophy, will know that you, these philosophies come through very strongly through media and through art. And so uh, Francis Schaeffer has written a whole bunch about that. And so the whole idea here is by giving this kind of overview, you get a sense of the development of how things have been moving. And I'm, I'm more or less basing this all on Peter Hicks's book, Evangelicals and Truth, which I found really helpful so far. Um, but I'm also doing some more general reading about this uh, because I'm writing an essay on it. So um, uh, we move through Plato. Uh, Just a a quick recap, who saw truth as being objective and we access that truth through uh, philosophy and that the the ultimate justification for an objective truth lay in God. And then Augustine uh, lay in this idea of the form of the good or this kind of form or the the reality um, underlying the truth. And then um, Augustine saw that as God. So he Christianized it, if you like, and, and, and agreed that this agreed with a biblical idea of truth, um, but saw the form of the good as, as God and saw that reason and philosophy were helpful, but only to an extent. And we needed more than that. We needed special revelation. We needed God to reveal himself to us uh, from outside as well. Um, and then came Aquinas, and he saw that, but he he went a little bit further. He agreed with the objective truth. He agreed that it depends on God, but he didn't agree that it depended on um, revelation from God. So he resisted that and placed a, a, a much more stock in our abilities and capabilities to reason. And so there was no need for revelation, just observation of the world around us. Um, in a kind of Aristotle-like way, was enough, and that led to the Renaissance, where there was the surge in confidence in human reason and human powers, um, and so even though God was recognized as kind of the f- the foundation of truth, um, it was more of an intellectual idea than an actual um, than being an active in the in the process of discerning truth or knowing truth, whereas Augustine would see us depending directly and explicitly on God in our pursuit of truth. Um, by the time the Renaissance came along, God was obviously the author of all truth and, and the thing that brought all truth together and gave it coherence. But at the same time, um wasn't really active in our pursuit of it. It was more to do with reason and the world around us. Now, this leads um, on to Francis Bacon. And, um, and he uh, said that, look, the faith and revelation are very, very important. We need them, but we need them only for religion. Uh, but the natural order we access through reason. By reasoning, he meant mainly inductive logic. uh, Some people view Francis Bacon as really the father of modern empiricism, the father of science, um, as we know today, of observation and inductive uh, reasoning. And so um, uh, that really shifted the argument. There's a slight separation now between the role of science, if you like, or the role of reason and the role of faith. So they're both important, but they just serve different purposes. They ex- accent, access different levels of truth. Descartes um, then comes along, and he develops a system of truth that depends on, on reason alone. So he he doesn't need faith. Um, he doesn't need revelation. He, he believed in God. He was a, a devout Christian, a committed Christian in, in the general sense. Uh, but he really wanted to... Show that Christianity could be believed through reason alone. And so he first rationally defends the idea of the self and then uh, the idea of God through some kind of ontological argument depends on that. And the problem is that now instead of reason depending on God, God depends on reason. We have to be able to show God through reason alone in order for God to be meaningful at all. So the truth is still objective. Um, it's still ser- possible to be certain so that's really what Descartes was 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 after he was defending the certainty that truth was attainable but the ultimate justification for truth and and um, Hicks really has these helpful questions he talks about the uh, the uh, objective question um, he talks about the relational question and the the ultimate justification question. And the objective question is is truth objective or is it subjective? The relational question is how do you get at the truth? And the ultimate justification question is what's the ultimate um, defense for the idea of truth as objective and noble? And so the ultimate justification um, for this objective attainable truth was still God, but this was really the beginning of the gradual dethronement of God and the enthronement of reason because if reason becomes the ultimate authority and um, uh, and the idea of God depends on us being able to demonstrate it reasonably or through reason uh... then there's a dethronement of God going on So, um, at the moment that's not explicit it's more the undercurrent but it begins this trend so things begin to change things begin to change from um reason, uh, truth being objective, um, and God being the ultimate justification, and reason and revelation being how we access that truth, now it begins to change. And if reason becomes the ultimate authority, then truth can no longer be sub- uh, objective. Because if you're using your reason to discover ultimate truth or 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 is the ultimate authority for discovering truth, then the truth is not objective. It's subjective. It's inside of you where your reason is. And so the modern period, uh, what we call modernism, was acting as if everything was based on firm, factual, objective truth. It was acting as if everything is based on the idea of of a knowable, objective truth. And yet, Philosophically, the kind of pillars supporting that notion were crumbling; they were weakening, um, and that leads us really onto John Locke, who, who, if you like, was uh, the one who who pushed things over the edge. So um, his theory was that actually, because we are thinking about everything subjectively, you can't actually know the thing itself; you can only know the idea of a thing. Um, it's like a picture of an elephant. It's not an elephant itself, it's a picture of the elephant. And so, because we're kind of trapped in our own minds, uh, you can't really have any direct exposure to the world. You only have exposure to the world through the thoughts, which means that um, you can't actually know the thing directly, but only the idea that's in your mind. And so knowledge is only true in so far as the two uh, are accurately correlated. So knowledge about the objective world is only true if the image that's in your mind subjectively is the same as the objective truth. Now the question is, how do you know that? How how can you assess that? How how do you know if the idea in your mind matches up to reality? So a, a silly example is you might have thought a thought of an experiment that you've you've probably played around with before, is, you know, how do you know if your color blue is the same as somebody else's color blue? You know, it's only true that the idea of blue in your mind is only a correct idea. It's only real insofar as it matches the blue out there. But how do you know that? How can you tell if the blue in your mind is not actually green or if it is blue? And so he goes on to, um, He goes on to answer it, and one of his key answers is God, that basically we rely on God to correlate the truth. So the the reason we can have certainty still and have true knowledge still is because we rely on God to reveal these things to us. God will guide us. He'll make it known to us. That was one of his answers to that. Uh, But the trouble is, the way the tide of philosophy was going, nobody really cared, and nobody really found that persuasive. So um, this went from Berkeley... Uh, from Locke to Berkeley, and Berkeley basically reversed Locke's ideas. So, uh, whereas Locke saw that um, you couldn't access the objective reality, only the thing in your mind, Um, uh, Berkeley saw that actually, so, so the objective world was still the real thing, but you accessed it through a derivative picture or image or thought in your mind. Berkeley reversed that completely. The world is the thing that's derivative, and the ideas are the reality. The thing in your mind is the real thing, is the elephant itself, and the thing out there is the picture. And um, so ideas are reality. Um, Thinking gives existence to objects of the world. And he still needed God, though, because uh, our minds are so finite, so limited, that uh, there would be no coherence. Uh, you know, there would be no correlation between one mind and another. And so we rely on some kind of overarching mind. We rely on God. We rely on the mind to bring things together and unite things and, and bring some coherence to the fragmentary nature of our minds. Um, and so he really took that to a whole new level, which led to Hume, who basically destroyed the link between the world and our thoughts. So if you had Locke, who said, uh, there is an objective world, a reality, but we only access it through our thoughts, but there is a connection. Then you had Berkeley, who reversed that, and he said, actually, the most important thing is the thing in your mind, not the thing out out there, but there is a connection. Then you get to Hume, who said, actually, there is no way to connect what is in your mind with what is out there, the subjective and the objective. There's no way to connect it. There's no rational way to do that. And so, his although it leads to skepticism, like how do you know anything about anything, um, that's not actually where he was going with it. What he was just trying to do is show that reason alone cannot actually do that. It, reason is utterly inadequate. You, it doesn't help us to know the truth in that sense. Which leads on to Kant. Immanuel Kant, uh, everyone knows him, he's famous. And he really was... Um, he took up the call. He was terrified, basically, by Hume's idea and the kind of skepticism of it. And so he conceded the point about the inadequacy of reason. And he conceded the, the point about the connection between what's in our minds and the reality. But rather than sort of fight it or kind of fall into skepticism, we should embrace it, he said. Actually, now the truth is subjective so forget about the concept of truth as objective it's a subjective reality embrace that uh, we control truth we create it it's private it's something in our in our minds in our thoughts and our ideas um, but he he did also want to caveat that not by saying by saying we shouldn't get rid of the idea of objective truth altogether but that reason couldn't access it. And the way that you access kind of objective truth in a sense is through faith or feeling or intuition. So it's a separate category of thing. The two never come together. They're different planes of truth, um, and they never cross over or overlap. And so um, really what he did was he he implied that objective truth was meaningless, even though he never actually explicitly rejected it. And that led us to really um, the, what happened to Western philosophy in general was in an attempt and I love the way Peter Hicks puts this he says, in an attempt to enthrone reason, we lost subjective truth, and therefore certainty sorry, we lost objective truth and therefore certainty as well. In an attempt to enthrone reason, we lost objective truth and therefore certainty as well. Um, and that's really been the tragedy of Western philosophy, and this led into the Romantic movement where everything's based on feelings and experience, and and it created what is what we still have something today of this gulf between fact and faith, between soul and body, between morals and science, between the objective and the subjective. There's this gulf, there's this divide, and it was just thought pointless to try and cross that divide. You just keep them separate. Um and that eventually led to Nietzsche. And Nietzsche uh, you know, comes up with a God is, is dead thing. And uh, really is saying that when God is removed as the ultimate justification for objective truth, all that is left is madness and irrationality. And uh, that is the position we find ourselves in. Um, pretty much at the point of uh, post-modernism coming to the fore. Now, Christians, uh, just to, to cap it off, kind of so what. And, um, and really, there's quite a lot to say about this. And we haven't even gotten into postmodernism. And that's really going to be where the rubber hits the road. But you can see the kind of foundation of it already. And Christians sought really to, to tackle this in two ways. The One is to demonstrate um, the whole uh, faith by reason, you know, to demonstrate every aspect of the Christian faith by reason. I think this is why you get some people who tried to, um, you know, explain away things like the miracle of the crossing of the Red Sea. Oh, it was just caused by like a strong wind. And Jesus walking on the water really just meant the shallows. And there might have been a sandbank under there. And, the, uh, the, you know, the calming of the storm was, well, these storms rose. You know, it was using kind of scientific or, or uh, geographical um, or climatological ideas to try and rationalize and explain away the miracles of the Bible. They wanted to show not only that Christianity was rational, but that every part of the Christian religion could be explained by reason. Um, and the other um, way the Christians went was to separate the theological from the historical and the scientific. Um, so to become Kantian in a sense and say, um, we believe in the theological truth of the Bible, but not the historical truth of the Bible. So, it's not actual history, but it is still true. And, um, of course, both of those things are strong reactions that go too far. Of course, Christianity is rational. Um, of course, that you should be able to demonstrate um, that Christian belief is rational. But there is something supernatural, something uh, supra-rational about Christianity as well. And of course, there is a, a theological truths in the Bible that aren't correlated to history. But the reality is that most of the theological truths of the Bible take place in history. God's word is a speech act; it's, it's uh, the actions of God explained through speech, and and so it's very difficult to separate. Um, history and theology in that sort of nice clean and neat way and so this leads us to where we are that is a, an overview of everything from Plato to postmodernism not including postmodernism uh, maybe I'll come on another point and do that but we're, uh, we're out of time today and that's as far as we're going to get and so I hope you've enjoyed this little sweep through um, do pick, out, uh, pick up Peter Hicks's book if you enjoyed this I think it's really helpful really accessible stuff Um, So, God bless, thanks for joining, see you tomorrow.